Brian, have you got a picture by the White House press secretary podium yet? Well, it's funny. I was looking through my phone recently and I thought about this because everybody likes to take the picture standing at (laughs) the podium as if they're taking the questions. I have this sort of picture of me next to the podium, not behind it. So yes, that is my mission. I will. I will have to get a picture of me behind it because right now, as we've discussed in the past, it's harder for foreign press to get into the press briefing room because of coronavirus restrictions. Fingers crossed they'll be lifted in the coming weeks and months and I'll be able to get that iconic picture behind the podium. Yeah, because not throwing any shade or anything, anyone who visits it, um, it's seems to be their profile picture for a considerable amount of time afterwards whether it's on LinkedIn or Twitter or even Facebook. It's the Washington equivalent of sort of trying to push up the Leaning Tower of Pisa you know that picture that everybody does next to the Leaning Tower <laughs> I just straighten it, stand behind the White House press briefing podium From RTE News this is States of Mind This American carnage. We've been fired at with rubber bullets. Stops right here. (laughs) And stops right now. I do not believe we're the dark, angry nation that Donald Trump sees in his tweets in the middle of the night. Your U.S. election 2020 podcast. With Brian O'Donovan in Washington. And Jackie Fox in Dublin. Today. And a new year, a new record. 301 days. That's how long it's been since the last formal White House press briefing. This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period, both in person and around the globe. What the president believes and feels is a truthful statement. Whether or not um, it's supported by, you know, facts, whether or not it's what the prevailing attitude is, that's a whole separate object. Presidents go through several White House press secretaries during their tenure in the White House. Barack Obama, he had three press secretaries during his two terms in office. Then in 2016, an unusual president was elected and an unusual White House team got attention like never before. This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period both in person and around the globe. That's right, Donald Trump's first press secretary, Sean Spicer. We heard a clip of it there, that sort of infamous moment, really, where he defended the crowd size at Donald Trump's inauguration. He landed himself in hot water on a couple of occasions. He was accused of telling lies on behalf of the president, but he most definitely was high profile. He projected that job into a massive primetime TV audience to a degree that the TV networks here in the US would run the press secretary briefing live, which was never done before. I can't say they don't really do it anymore right now, but it's certainly at the time a big, high-profile, controversial president who had a big, high-profile, controversial press secretary in the form of Sean Spicer. And listen, a White House press secretary, they're the mouthpiece of the president. It's a crucial pick for them, especially as they face re-election, because they need someone strong, sturdy and immovable to shape media coverage, establish credibility and win support for key priorities and policies. Yeah, and it's a high-profile job and one of the most famous fiction press secretaries in recent years was probably CJ on The West Wing, who was played by Alison Janney. I'm sorry, CJ, but you're not outraged by this? Outraged? I'm barely surprised. This is a country where women are allowed to drive a car. They're not allowed to be in the company of any man other than a close relative. 
They beheaded 121 people last year for robbery, rape, and drug trafficking. They have no free press, no elected government, no political parties. But Brutus is an honorable man. 17 schoolgirls were forced to burn alive because they weren't wearing the proper clothing. Am I outraged? No, Steve. No, Chris. No, Mark. That is Saudi Arabia, our partners in peace. Yeah, and a really strong character, and it showed what a big role it was. And what we've seen under the Trump administration is different styles. We spoke about Sean Spicer being the first, very out there, quite controversial, doing lots of briefings that got lots of attentions. Mm. He then handed over to his deputy, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. She began by doing quite a lot of briefings, and then they disappeared. She just stopped doing the briefings. They were no more. She was replaced by Stephanie Grisham for a short time. Absolutely no briefings. Time now for the ridiculous. And a new year, a new record. 301 days. That's how long it's been since the last formal White House press briefing and still no sign at the podium of one Stephanie Grisham. The current press secretary, Kayleigh McEnany, is doing regular briefings again. She comes in very prepared. She's very ready for all the questions and turns it around and attacks the media when she herself is under attack. That's an absurd uh, attempt to justify the misleading headlines that are regularly on your network. Like I was just walking in watching CNN as they lauded the, the, quote, rallies in the streets. Are you, you, were, are you saying that the president got to let me finish, Jen. This, this isn't a cable news segment. I'm answering your question right okay. now from the White House podium. But as I say, different to see the levels of access. At the time when Sarah Sanders scrapped virtually the whole concept of a press briefing, her counter-argument would be, yes, but you get access to the president himself because he was doing these long rambling sort of doorstep media gaggle interviews under the helicopter in the South Lawn, which we've spoken about before. From a personal perspective as a foreign journalist, that was a way of getting access to the president. You could see him at that point and get your question in. As you've Unfortunately, done a couple however, of times, Brian. As I've managed over. to do. You're planning on going to Dunebeg in Ireland. Can you tell us about that visit? What do you hope to do? Well, we're going to be staying at Dunebeg in Ireland because it's convenient and it's a great place, but it's convenient. Uh, we'll be meeting with a lot of the Irish officials and it'll be an overnight stay and I look forward to that. What will you be discussing with the Taoiseach while you're there? You have to have a loud voice, you shout over the helicopter, you get the president's attention, you get your question in, perhaps in a better way and in a more accessible way than the regular press briefing. But of course, people would say the press briefing got a chance to get more detailed questions, to get into the nitty gritty. It was very easy for Donald Trump to ignore the question or to claim he couldn't hear it because that helicopter, I can tell you, is very, very loud. Well, let's go talk to the guy who got the ball rolling uh, for this Trump administration. Former White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer, welcome to States of Mind. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. No, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I think it could be safe to say that the focus has never been more on the White House and the White House Press Secretary. When you look at everything happening at the moment, the coronavirus, a re-election year, international eyes on steps, what steps Donald Trump will take next... Is there any part of you that wishes you were back in the thick of it? Do you miss it? Would you go back? Uh, I, I have missed it one day and uh, I have a hard time thinking that I, I mean, short of some kind of mental illness that I would go back. Uh, I, I mean, I, in all honesty, I enjoyed doing it. It was an honor. But um, the intensity and the scrutiny is just something that you can only take for so long. And uh, and, and I had my time and now it's time to move on. So I, 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 I don't mistake 
not you know the the honor that I had, but at the same time, there's no way knowing what I know now that I could walk back in there. Wow. Do you think the role of you know the White House press secretary has changed since Donald Trump entered office? It's a great question um, because there's questions about the role of the press secretary, the role of the staff, and then the role of the presidency since since Trump. Um, and what I mean by it, and I think all three are the same, which is that public facing piece of it. I always joke that I, I thought that uh, that I, my profile would jump up a notch when I joined the White House staff, just because I previously just been doing interviews on politics and stuff. Um, but you realize in this White House, it's not just the press secretary, but the chief of staff and some of several of the other advisors that have suddenly grown with this public persona. I really don't see that thing continuing. I think um, whether it's this election with Joe, you know, Joe Biden beats Trump or in four years, Trump's reelected the next president. I doubt you're going to see a recurring or a return to this. Uh, very few politicians. I mean, Trump was the unpolitician. Um, and I, I just don't see something like this coming along, at least in my lifetime for either party. Sean, Donald Trump very much cares about crowd size and you infamously defended the size of the crowd at his inauguration. How do you think Donald Trump has been feeling in recent weeks? He was looking at a lot of empty seats in a rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He's had to cancel rallies. There's been poor attendances. How do you think he's feeling right now? Well, it's probably a mixed bag. Um, And I say that because, you know, you, you definitely had that Tulsa one was unbelievably disappointing. I think the campaign was the one that jacked up expectations. They were talking about a million people that had tried to get tickets. And then clearly that wasn't the case when you saw it happen. But at the same time, you have a pandemic going around, which is, you know, unequivocally part of the reason. And so I think that knowing Trump, as long as he can excuse why it's happening and say, well, you've got a pandemic, people are being told not to congregate in large places, uh, that probably helps. That being said, I think part of the reason you're seeing this return to briefings is that he has, he feeds off this um, uh, desire to want to have a constant conversation, if you will, with the American people. Just on that return to the briefing, they were scrapped back in April because they had become very problematic for Donald Trump. He mused aloud about injecting disinfectants into the body. If you were his press secretary, would you have advised him to resume those briefings? Do you think it's a good move? So that's a good question because I I think the briefings are important during a national pandemic or any sort of crisis. It's important that the leader is seen as being out there. That being said, to your point about how they were conducted, that's where I would have you know, inserted myself. What I think the president has done a really good job of right now as they've returned is he goes out there, he says, he gives, provides the update both in terms of the economy, health, and the overall effort to defeat the pandemic. And then he takes a few questions and walks away. Um, they're not long and freewheeling. The only other piece of advice that I would give him would be to, you know, bring an expert or two at one point. But at the end of the day, remember, especially as we head into an election, people are judging this president on this president's actions and this president's policy and this president's results. So when you have a whole team up there, although it's somewhat beneficial, you also got to make sure that you balance and don't let you know the attention go away from the principal, in this case, the president, because he needs to be seen as leading the country through this crisis. There seems to be a shift of image from his part, though. Over the past couple of weeks, we've seen a change in tone in his approach to the coronavirus pandemic. He's now actively wearing a mask. And as we were talking about there, he's restarted those press briefings. Why do you think that is? Is, is he worried about his re-election bit? 
You know, it sounds kind of cliche, but I, I don't think he's worried. He doesn't, I've never, in all the time I've known him, he never gets worried in the sense that I, I don't know you, but I know I do when, you know, something's going on. I get, you know, okay, well, how's it going to work out? What do we need to do? He rarely shows signs of being worried. That being said, I think you're right that there has been a change in the tone and the style. Um, whether that's a combination of health officials and advisors or outside advisors and friends or just the public data and polling getting to them, I don't know, but I mean, I would assume it's a combination of all of those. That being said, I think, frankly, as I mentioned with the briefings, I think we are, in, he, he has done a much better last 10 days to two weeks than he had, you know, coming out of the gate. Because you remember his poll numbers initially were very good. He started doing very well with how he's leading the pandemic. And then as those briefings continued, as the pandemic continued, they started to go down. I'll be really interested to see we are where we are in terms of handling the pandemic you know, in a week from now, once this whole new mode of communicating sets in. Just to go back to the role of the White House press secretary for a moment, I want to go into that because obviously there's a new kid on the block, uh, Kayleigh McEnany. Do you think truth twisting has gone a little bit too far, that there is too much spin and loyalty to the president to make him look good? For instance, when Donald Trump thought out loud that people should ingest disinfectant. The White House press secretary, Kayleigh McEnany, said they were taking, those comments were taken out of context. And she was also seen defending President Trump's use of racist language, uh, describing the coronavirus as Kung flu. Has things gone a little bit too far? Well, ultimately, your job as a press secretary is to defend your principles. And and if you don't, you know, if, if she went out there and said, hey, the president's wrong, I don't think that she would last more than five minutes after saying that. I don't, and, and, and that pretty much goes, any press secretary that goes out and contradicts the institution that they work for or the person that they work for, um, I, I think is, you know, pretty ha- pretty much going to guarantee themselves a short tenure after that. That being said, I think that there's a way that she might have been able to nuance things better in that instance, um, you know. And and so I think you can look at each particular instance and sort of get into the to the thing. But I, right now the problem isn't just on it's it's a two sided problem. The press has figured out how to use briefings and opportunities like that to kind of create a you know as many gotcha moments in, as possible. And it's not become an opportunity as it used to be for the press secretary to get out there provide information as far as what the government in or the White House in particular was doing, and then the press to try to gather more information on policy or personnel updates, whatever. It's literally became become a game of gotcha. The press secretary tries to figure out how to shame the press. The the reporters try to figure out how to twist, you know, them into a pretzel to figure out how they can make a moment, and and that's unfortunate because it's kind of moved. The, there's there's a point at which it becomes pointless. The briefing doesn't serve a purpose if the only purpose is for reporters to either have their moment on YouTube or television or the press secretary to have their moment, and and it becomes a game of literally trying to figure out who scored more points against the other person. Sean, critics of yours and critics of Donald Trump would say that you told lies from that podium and you told lies for Donald Trump, who was also telling lies. When you look back at your time in that podium, did you tell lies to the American people at any stage? No. Um, you know, I've said this before. What, what I think when I look at a lot of the critique, people will say, you know, you knew the, the, the following. And, and that, that's, you know, to, to make that assumption is pretty hard. I, I went out there every day. There were days when I asked the president, how do you feel about X? Um, based on uh, a media inquiry, I would go back and say the president says he feels this way. The president believes this. What the president believes and feels is a truthful statement. Whether or not um, it's supported 
by you know facts, whether or not it's what the prevailing attitude is. That's a whole separate object. But for me to go out there and tell you what the president believes um, is, is a truthful statement. My job is to deliver his thoughts and beliefs and updates on what happened. Um, it, it's not to be an interpreter. That's not the job of the press secretary. And if, it's, if, it, if that's the case, then the press is asking the wrong questions, right? So if you ask a question, say, what does the president believe on this issue? And you come back and tell it to him. Well, you may not agree with it. You may think he's flat wrong. You may think his, his facts are misplaced. But at the end of the day, if your question is, what does he believe? That, that's up to then, – then you're getting the answer that you wanted. If you're asking whether or not the premise of, of the issue or his belief is factual, that's quite another discussion and issue. Sean, I read your book, The Briefing, when it came out two years Thank ago. You. An enjoyable read, I have to say. Um, I reread it over the last few days just to refresh my memory. And what struck me was your background. You were very much from the Republican Party side, not from the Trump side. You were a data guy. You were a polling guy. You were all about identifying voters. What is your assessment right now of where Donald Trump is at? He is way behind Joe Biden. Can he overcome it? And can he win on Election Day? That's a really good question, Brian. Let, let me just start by saying first, thank you and provide the book for reading it. Is the second thing. Um, uh, then my next book comes out in October, so I hope you get that as well. Um, I, I, I am a data guy in the sense that I, that's, that's what you have to look at. And, and it's, it's almost like any other circumstance these days that you know, the, the analytics, the stuff on the ground. And, and right now, our election is going to come down to probably eight states, maybe nine, maybe seven, but somewhere in that that ballpark. Um, the, and the president right now, there's no question in my mind that the president's a little behind, but he was in 2016 as well. And the question that comes down, and, and if you read the book, you'll know there's a chapter that I put in there called Upshifting the Downshifters, uh, where we had a lot of very hardcore Republicans that vote Republican all the time. They weren't going to vote for Hillary, but they were uncomfortable voting for Trump. And we're seeing that again in this election to some degree. And the question is, can we go out and make the case to those individuals? That's where the mechanics of the campaign, Brian, come down to. Can you knock on enough doors? Can you register enough voters? Can you get them to cast that ballot? Um, that's what matters. And, the, and, and what I would argue is, is that right now the Trump campaign has had a three-and-a-half-year head start over Biden. While Biden was trying to re- win a very crowded primary the Trump campaign, the RNC, and the affiliated super PACs have out there running a general election strategy. So, for example, in Michigan, they've been on the ground in Michigan, you know, for three years. The Biden campaign's just putting their team in there now. So, you know, if you think about it in terms of running a race, a road race, if if both people are running the same pace, you're both running, you know, a 10-minute mile or a, an eight-minute kilometer, and one person gets, you know, an hour head start. It's, it's hard to catch up. And so the question really comes down to if this election can stay somewhat close, I think that that is going to give him an edge. The question is, can he close the gap in those individual states? Because when you do national polls, you're not going to win. Republicans are going to win New York or California. But I think we're pretty safe in, in places, you know, in the Midwest, in South Dakota, North Dakota, Montana. So we've got to look at those battleground states and make sure that we have an absolute plan to register enough voters, to convert enough voters, and to make sure that we get all of those what we call low propensity voters, the people who don't tend to vote as regularly as others out there and do it. And and this is where the mechanics of the campaign are going to be crucial. Would Texas be one of those states, Sean Spicer? You know, usually a red Republican state, but it seems to be turning a little bit purple within the last couple of years. I mean, Beto O'Rourke gave Ted Cruz a pretty good run for his money recently. Yeah, Jackie, I think that it is definitely, I wouldn't put it in the purple category. I'd say it's 
it's a lighter shade of red than it has been in the last. Uh, but but I don't think that we're there yet. Um, the the state Republican Party has done a really good job of going out and recruiting new voters. I think it's going to be closer than it ever has. Um, but I think for this cycle and probably the next, Texas and Georgia are still solid Republican. Um, I think the Republican Party has gotten the the wake up because if we start putting Texas in the in the toss up column, it's going to be a challenge for this for this for my party to win presidential elections for a while. I mean, that's what happened in California in the 80s. We let it trend um, from being a somewhat reliably red state, and now it is solidly blue. So I don't think Texas is there yet, uh, but it's definitely not trending in the right direction. What do you see as Donald Trump's biggest battle in this election? Well, his biggest battle is is that you know you're coming out, you've got a pandemic, and you've got an economy that that has been in shambles after doing really well, and he's got to make a very clear case to the voters that to stick with him, and that's really what it comes down to. If you're an incumbent um, going into an election, a, the the election's always a referendum on the incumbent, and so last time it was Hillary versus Trump, and he could make the case, hey, my policies are going to be better than hers, and it was theoretical. Well, now people are looking and saying, do we stick with this horse? Do we think the economy is moving in the right direction? Do you have what it takes to kind of quash this pandemic? And he's got to make that very crystal clear as to what a Biden administration looked like and why people need to stick with him. That's why I think that the tone and tenor of the last you know, two weeks to 10 days has been much better because it gives – he is out there talking in a much more um, – you know, smart is probably the, the short answer of how to deal with the pandemic. He's going out, giving the facts and the figures, talking about what the government is doing, updating the American people and staying focused on that. And if he can continue to do that, I think we have a pretty good shot. I think that the, the issue right now is, you know, if you think about it, what, what should be concerning to the Trump campaign is that everyone keeps mocking Joe Biden, saying he's in his basement, he's in his basement, he's not doing anything. It's true. But he's climbing in the polls. And so, you know, if that strategy is working, it doesn't matter how you win. Right. At the end of the day, if Joe Biden stays in his basement for the next 99 days and wins the election, why does it? It doesn't matter once you, you know, you win. And so I think the Trump campaign has got to start drawing it, that contrast between Biden and Trump much, much clearer. You mentioned if Texas were to be lost, what that would mean for the Republican Party going forward. Republicans have been criticized a lot for not calling Donald Trump out on Mueller report, on Ukraine, on racist comments, on late reaction to the coronavirus. So the Republicans have stayed silent. If it is a disastrous election for Donald Trump come November and he loses in a landslide, has he done damage to the Republican Party? And will it be a long road to recovery for the party? No, I mean, look, you, you look at if you look back through our party, when when the when you have the party of the president, um, it, it, the party shapes in your mold. If you think about it, when when Bill Clinton was elected, there was fear among the Democrats that that the Democratic Party had inched too far to the right and that liberalism was was going to be was dead. And obviously, that clearly has not happened. It has gone further and further to the left. Um, so I, I don't think that one presidency shapes the Republican Party for that long. If you look at traditionally the party out of power whether it's the Republican Democrats, at least in the last couple of decades, has had this period of churn where it's a soul-searching moment and they try to figure out who the leaders are, where they want to go. Um, my guess is that if Trump were to lose, we would go through that moment again. You would have these fissures in the party about whether or not we needed to double down on, on, on Trump and his policies and his rhetoric or whether or not we need to move in a new direction. The nice thing that I look – as I look around the corner for 2024 – 
is you've got a lot of really interesting and great leaders that look like they're going to step up to the plate in a big way. I mean, Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, Nikki Haley. There's a lot of these individuals um, who, you know, um, are, are that next generation of leadership for the Republican Party. And I think that will be very helpful because you've got people that will keep the party um, you know, moving in, in a positive direction. But there's, like I said, there's always churn. If you look at where the Democratic Party is post-Obama, you know, once they lost, you have them out there really going into a far, far left socialist direction, which is not, frankly, where Obama left the party. And so, you know, the question is what would happen uh, post-Trump in terms of churn? I, I don't know, but I think it will be a it, it's almost like a family feud afterwards where all the family members are arguing about what the family should do. And by and large, over the last couple of decades, it's always worked itself out. You know the guy, you've worked with him. Could you see him refusing to leave even if he loses? No, I think it's just, first of all, look, anyone who's running for office is always going to say, I'm not planning on that. I'm expecting to win. You never talk about losing because that's just not how politics is done. I mean, and the irony, Brian, is that all of the discussion always stays on Trump, right? And it started that way in 2016, where it was like Trump said that he wouldn't accept the election. Hillary Clinton still has not accepted defeat in the 2016 election. Stacey Abrams, who ran for governor in Georgia, and it wasn't even that close of an election, talks about the fact that it was stolen from her. It's ironic that over and over again, we keep hearing about what Trump says and as if it's a national policy. Yeah, but they weren't incumbents, then, to be but, fair, but, but, and there was no physical office for them to leave. It's not really comparing oh, like no, no, with fair, like, fair, but yeah, I take but, your point. But my point is that it's always this, you know, and, and you've got Biden talking about the fact that, you know, his greatest fear is that Trump steals the election. It's the Democrats that are spreading fear into the integrity of our system. But at the end of the day, I, I got to tell you this, our, our constitution is clear. If Joe Biden were to win the election, um, and and there, you know, and it was certified. Of course, Donald Trump. It wouldn't matter. I, I think, frankly, it's a silly discussion in the sense that the the way that our institution works is that they would remove physically anyone of any party at any point in our country if if they refuse to leave the office. Our constitution is clear about the, the peaceful. And the other thing is, I got to be honest with you, knowing Donald Trump, and that's your question, Brian. I can't. He would never want that to happen. I mean, he would. He, you know, he might kick and scream a little or make, but he's going to walk out and, you know, do, do whatever he can. But once the election is certified, I have no question in my mind. And I think there's enough people in this country that from both Republican and Democrat, that that, that this wouldn't be an issue. I, I really think that this is somewhat manufactured by the media because, you know, you, you've got a situation that's very clear in our country how the peaceful transfer of power works. But Sean, is he not putting the foundations there that if he loses, he's already labeling absentee ballots or postal no, voting No, 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 hold fraud. on, Jackie. That's not true. That's not true. I've actually been very active tweeting about this. See, this is where folks in the media continue to get this wrong. There is a big difference in our country between absentee ballots and mail-in ballots. Every state in our union allows for absentee ballots, always has. And that is you go in, you create, there's a process by which you prove who you are through your license, da, 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 you get the ballot, it comes back, there's usually a signature piece of this, and it goes back. That's very different. And where the media is being extremely dishonest in our country right now is they keep going and saying Trump's against mail-in ballots. Absentee ballots are one thing. Every state allows for them, always has. What's different is this idea that is going around in several states right now where they're mailing every single voter that's on the voting rolls a blank ballot. That is much dangerous, much more dangerous, much more susceptible to fraud. 
And again, it's creating a problem, a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. Every single state in this country permits absentee ballots, everyone. And so this idea that it's a, that it doesn't a mail-in ballot is a much more susceptible to fraud and abuse. And I think that, I mean, think about it. You have people that are on voting rolls right now that have been dead, that, you know, let their voter registration lapse. And literally the state is mailing out every single person on the voting rolls. I'm a sorry poll. to interrupt. So, I mean, look, I got one person that works Hold on. I got one person that works for me on my show right now um, that had moved. And luckily, she, the last place that she had lived was at her parents' home. And so her parents called her and said, hey, by the way, there's a ballot that came to you. She, it, imagine if that same person hadn't you know, it wasn't she hadn't lived at home, but she had lived with a group of friends or in some random apartment building. That ballot would just be sitting there. And the problem is, is that we're the media in the country are continue to inflate mail in ballots where the state mails every single voter a ballot, an absentee ballot in which the voter requests the ballot. That's a big distinction. But the, we're living in different times, Sean, as well. We're in the middle of a pandemic and there's safety concerns okay. here. Sure. Have but to again, why? Vote. Jackie, Jackie, hold on. 100 percent agree with you. So call and ask for a ballot. That's what an absentee ballot is. I have no problem. I voted in our pri- in our state's primary like that. I called and asked for a ballot. They sent it to me. I had to prove who I was with my license over online. It's all online. Then I had to sign it on the back so they could verify the signature and I sent it in. So d- this fake problem that continues to exist, I'm hugely supportive of absentee ballots because there are measures put in place to ensure that the voter is the voter who they say they are. There's nothing wrong with that. So why won't the Democrats and the media just start saying absentee ballots? Because the problem is, what, and that, that's the question that I keep asking that I can't get an answer to. Absentee ballots exist in every state. It just requires the voter to affirmatively ask for a ballot as opposed to the state randomly sending everyone out. I think that everybody should vote absentee because of the pandemic for safety. But to, cre- to pretend that that doesn't exist is doing a disservice to voters. Sean, before we leave you go, I have to ask you about a different type of voting, and that yes. is voting on Dancing with the Stars. So for our listeners in Ireland who don't know, you were a contestant on Dancing with the Stars here in the US, which at home in Ireland is, is the BBC version, Strictly Come Dancing, but everybody will yes. be familiar with it. And that wonderful skin-tight green ruffled shirt of yours, was that a nod to your Irish roots when you decided to wear green in your dancing performances? Brian, you are the first person to do that, to make that. And I, I actually love it, so I may stick, I may... I may steal that. Uh, He's running with that. That that was, um, and and I actually talk about that in the book that's coming out in in October. That was, uh, I think everyone in Hollywood, every liberal in Hollywood was like, let's, let's make this guy, you know, wear something and it's payback. So I, I, uh, luckily I had lost about 15 or 20 pounds because that would have looked much worse before that. But uh, as was evidenced from the show, uh, I was not a good dancer. I thought it would be a lot of fun. I had a blast doing it. Um, But that was, uh, I mean, honest to God, I was scared going into that, more scared than going into the White House briefing room. And uh, I ended up just absolutely loving the experience. So uh, in any case. Sean Spicer, thank you so much for joining us. That was excellent. Thank you. You bet. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Jackie. Thanks a million, Sean. All right. Take care. August 2020, who knew it would come around this quickly and in such odd circumstances, but it is still convention season, Brian. 
And you mentioned odd. The conventions are going to be very odd. They're going to be very unconventional. Uh, the Democrats are proceeding in a couple of weeks' time with Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which was the original location, but they have said it'll be way scaled back. They have told delegates to stay away. They've told supporters to stay away. It will be Joe Biden in front of a camera, presumably uh, with his VP pick by his side. And nobody else will be in the room. It will be just a very virtual scaled back event. As we know, the Republicans, Donald Trump, wanted a big, big rally type event in North Carolina. The authorities there said no because of coronavirus. He moved his big acceptance speech to Jacksonville, Florida, because he was going to be allowed to have a big rally there. But again, with the big spike in cases in Florida, he's also had to back down on that. So they're back in North Carolina, far, far more scaled back for the Republicans as well. But they will still go ahead, these two conventions, and they have a purpose. Absolutely. And we will be going into their format, their importance, um, and, you know, particular noteworthy conventions in history over the next couple of weeks on States of Mind. Thanks to, as well, Dervla for getting in contact with us via our email, RTE. .ie. She wants to know all about national conventions, so she better tune in in August because that's all we're going to do. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Jackie. Thanks, Brian.